coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. Okay, so we thought we would start the day by seeing the Cop City Vote folks turning in petitions loaded with signatures, more than 70,000, more than 80,000, we were told. Actually, the number is more than 100,000 signatures, and the Cop City Vote folks are ready to turn those petitions in, but they're starting to hear some questions about how the city is going to go through the signatures and verify that these are eligible voters. There's a lot of talk about using signature match. In fact, uh, sitting here reading a tweet thread from the Atlanta Community Press Collective uh, that goes as cited. Uh, this morning, the Stop Cop City Coalition announced it had collected 104,000 signatures. 104. That's incredible. On the petition. Uh, to add a ballot question to the next election, asking Atlanta voters to decide if the 2021 Atlanta Public Safety Training Center lease should be overturned. The coalition reports that the city is planning to argue that minimum number of signatures, originally 58,203, should be based on the total number of registered voters in Atlanta during the 2021 municipal election, including inactive voters. That new number is closer to 62,000. According to the coalition, Atlanta is also planning to use signature matching as a means of validating the petition, signature matching is frequently invoked as another means of voter suppression in elections. I just have to keep reminding myself that this is in the city of Atlanta. This is not a state measure. This is not a state effort. You have a Democratic mayor, vastly majority liberal council, and we're sitting here talking about signature match. The ACLU, by the way, believes that signature match laws disproportionately impact voters already on the margins. And if, like me, you're wondering, well, how is that so? Well, I decided to dive in. I was going to the ACLU website to find out exactly how this actually occurs. A voter signature can change for many reasons, the ACLU writes. Voters who live with a disability, including many elderly voters, are more likely to vote absentee due to accessibility issues. It is also more likely that their signature looks different than it did when they first registered to vote. Some degenerative diseases or disabilities with periodic symptoms do not affect a voter at the time of registration, but may result in tremors or other symptoms that change the way someone signs their name. People with eyesight loss have signatures that change over time. Did not know that. I have eyesight issues since I was born. And I, I got to be honest, I know my signature doesn't always look the same. This piece from the ACLU writes that their client in New Hampshire, Mary Sauceda, for example, 95 years old, legally blind. She votes with the help of her husband and cannot sign the same way twice. There are many people like Ms. Sauceda who, for a variety of reasons, rely on another person to help them sign their ballot envelope, which is legal, and an important component of making voting accessible for people living with disabilities. The ACLU piece continues, signature matching tends to affect other vulnerable groups as well. People who are transgender may have a different signature and use a different name than when they initially registered to vote. Due to a plethora of legal, financial, and societal barriers, legal name changes are not always possible. If they sign with a name that does not match the name in their voter registration file or attempt to recreate their old signature, it may trigger a signature mismatch. Women who more often change their name upon marriage or divorce 
are also affected. The significance of hyphenated last name or the presence or absence of a spouse's last name can be an important part of a person's identity. People who do not speak or write English as their first language and have had to learn to sign their name in a different language are another group impacted. And members of the military and voters living overseas who vote by absentee ballot are more likely to experience signature match issues simply by dint of relying on the absentee voting process. Well, obviously, that piece is written with absentee voting central at mind, so the absentee stuff doesn't really factor in as much as the rest. So the Cobb City Vote press release that uh, came out via Instagram reads... Vote to Stop Cop City Coalition collects over 100,000 signatures in support of ballot referendum calls for free and fair verification process. We are calling on the city to share their plans for the verification process and be transparent in their preparation. We're proud to have collected over 100,000 signatures and counting, and our collection continues. They uh, call on their supporters to call on the city to implement a fair validation process by calling 404-330-6030. We've collected over 104,000 raw signatures around the city of Atlanta from Southwest to Buckhead, and the people have decided Cop City must be put on the ballot, said Mary Hawks, tactical lead for the referendum coalition. Originally, the coalition had planned to turn in our signatures today, August 21st. However, in recent days, we began to hear from reporters and sources inside City Hall that the city of Atlanta is planning to argue for a higher than previously reported legal minimum signature count for ballot access. More concerning were reports that they also plan to utilize, quote, signature match, an archaic and widely abandoned tool of voter suppression that has been widely condemned across the political spectrum, including by the Republican-controlled Georgia State Legislature in their verification process. Given the city of Atlanta's open and ongoing hostility to the cop city vote referendum effort, the coalition wants to leave no doubt as to the will of Atlanta voters. The coalition will continue collecting signatures using a time extension granted by U.S. Federal District Judge Mark Cohen in Baker v. Atlanta, which allows us to continue to petition gather through September 23, 2023. They continue, it is imperative that the city of Atlanta immediately share their plans for a transparent, fair, and objective verification process. Kamal Franklin from Community Movement Builders adding to their press release, if the city needs to see a demonstration of the people's commitment to this issue, we're happy to provide one. That followed a line in the press release that says, in addition, the coalition consider upcoming opportunities for nonviolent direct actions to direct the people's frustration with council's obstruction of the democratic process. Y'all, how many times have I said this? This is one of these moments, yet another one of these moments, where the narrative has been captured by the Stop Cop City movement, mostly because the city has decided to play the role of villain. And I I think that when, when you see more of these efforts to try and stop the referendum from even happening, the more you realize, as as I do anyway, that the city realizes they have fumbled this on so many public relations levels, it's not even funny, and that they are facing strong headwinds. When you get twice as many signatures on a petition as the sitting mayor got votes to win his election. 
Somebody's got to go. Uh-oh. Reading from the article in today's AJC, once the signatures are turned in, they will be sent back to the clerk, who has 50 days to confirm the list has enough signatures of registered voters in the city of Atlanta and present the petition to the city council. If it's determined valid by council members, we're putting this in their hands. They have one week to issue a call for a special referendum election, which will put the question of the controversial training facility in front of voters. Earlier this month, a resolution was introduced by Councilmember Dustin Hillis to hire outside legal counsel to assist with the verification of the signature. City Council was set to vote on the resolution at some point in time today. Joseph Papp with the AJC covering that story and concludes the uh, article with this line. In a memo, organizers suggested the city should use sampling or other statistical methodology to predict whether enough valid signatures exist and engage in a clear and transparent individual analysis only when doubts exist about the signature's validity. By the way, over the weekend, uh, regional, somewhat national, conservative commentator, pundit Eric Erickson, who lives in Macon and had been on WSB radio locally and now via syndication, uh, held his gathering of, well, all the major, I guess, GOP presidential candidates, save for the guy with all the indictments, and who Eric Erickson is not in any way supporting whatsoever. He's on the DeSantis train. Anyway, he held his gathering over the weekend, and Chris Christie uh, was lobbed a, a question about Cop City. Listen to Eric and Chris's answer. You mentioned crime. I, I, I don't want to talk about that RICO case. Yeah. I want to talk about another RICO case. I know you know Rico. Mm -hmm. We have a situation here in Atlanta, for those of you not from the state, uh, it's a police training facility. The Antifa members have come in and taken over the land. We know they're being funded just based on, on their own statements by outside nonprofits, one of which Stacey Abrams on the board. They have firebombed a youth facility in the city. They firebombed businesses. They firebombed a, a, um, a, a fire department. They have shot at police officers. They've booby-trapped trees. It is stunning to me that in a day and age when the Biden administration says we need better trained police, the city of Atlanta is committed to building a police training facility, Antifa activists are shutting it down, and there is, to my knowledge, no federal investigation at all into the coordinated effort. Somebody's got to be paying the living expenses of these kids from New Jersey and New York and Washington State who have come down. Of the 50 people who have been arrested, two are from Georgia. Well, but I think Erickson must have forgotten, apparently, that they actually did do that ridiculous raid on the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, <laughs> the, the bail fund uh, folks, for collecting money for legal aid and for various other things, by the way. But Eric somehow forgot that part. The Atlanta Solidarity Fund, y'all, not, not some organized racketeering venture, just the Atlanta Solidarity Fund. Anyway, uh, let me get back to that conversation. Look, this is why we need an attorney general who will do three things with every matter that comes before him or her. To prosecute matters without fear, without favor, and without partisanship. And I, folks in New Jersey will tell you, I spent seven years as the U.S. attorney right before I became governor. So I had a lot of opinions about prosecution and a lot of experience at it. When I became governor, I appointed an attorney general, and I got out of her way. And what I said to her was, don't call me about any criminal case. I don't 
want to know. I used to hate when politicians, when I was U.S. attorney, used to comment on the investigations I was doing because I knew they didn't know what the hell they were talking about. <laughs> and the best thing, by the way, about being U.S. attorney, the way I did it was, people ask me this all the time, what's the best part of being U.S. attorney? I said, the best part is only I know what I know. <laughs> and that's an advantage. And that's an advantage we have to bring back. These prosecutions should be confidential. They should be done without fear, favor, or partisanship. And something like this that's going on in Georgia, the U.S. attorney in Atlanta should be all over this. This is multi-jurisdictional in terms of the people who are perpetrating these acts. This is what the federal prosecuting system was made to deal with. And absolutely, it seems to me, and I don't know every fact, but the way you're presenting it to me, RICO seems particularly appropriate in that circumstance, given that you obviously have an organization here that's uh, racketeering and is corrupt. And that's what RICO stands for, everybody. I happen to think Chris Christie is wrong in trying to use federal prosecutory powers on the Cop City movement because, again, he was, as he said, taking his cues from what Eric Erickson gave him, which wasn't steeped in fact. And so that's a problem. You, you got to know what you're talking, right? He just said, I'm the only one that knew what I knew. Well, sometimes you don't know everything that you need to know to make a decision like that. And Eric Erickson kind of gave him some misinformation, a lot of distortion, a lot of spin, a lot of Antifa, uh, you know, <laughs> seasoning the question. So Chris Christie's statement, while it got a lot of headlines over the weekend, to me is kind of a big legal, meh. He doesn't really know what he's talking about because he got bad information within the question. Okay, plenty more to talk about. Guess who is in second place, by the way, in the New Hampshire polling for the GOP primary? Find out next. Welcome back to The Ron Show for Monday. Another hot ass Monday. <laughs> Another hot ass week. The city, again, is opening cooling stations this week. We're going to have temperatures uh, at or near 100 degrees later this week. I'm seeing a lot of first day of school pictures back uh, from my friends in South Carolina who, you know, they start a little bit later than we do, obviously. And even then I'm thinking, why are we sending kids to school in this hot weather? <laughs> That's just, we're looking to save money. We're, we're looking to, you know, cut back on costs a little bit. That HVAC bill, man, that, that, well, you know how utilities are for, for us right now. Like I'm paying about one and a half times as much as I normally pay. Georgia Power, man, they're going to get that plan Vogel paid for one way or the other, right? I mean, I know that they raised rates in me and they told us they were a bunch of it. Still, it's hot. A friend of mine uh, tried to talk me into going to a Braves game this week. And yesterday, as a matter of fact, and I'm like, uh-uh. A day game in August? Starts at one? No. Uh-uh. Ain't no way. And then I got a text from him earlier. Nightmare. <laughs> so hot. Cell phone didn't want to work until cooling off. Saw kids putting ice in their ball caps. A uh, pair of foreigners... Uh, got their legs burned because the seats were frying pan. Yeah, uh-uh. I don't need none of that. Inside the cozy confines of Eric Erickson's The Gathering were uh, several presidential uh, aspirants trying to wrest the GOP nomination from the tiny-handed, orange-fingered clutches of one Donald Trump, who, by the way, will not be at the upcoming GOP debate. He is sending, <laughs> he's sending Marjorie Taylor Greene, which, uh, listen, I think that's a brilliant stroke. I, I do. I think that is brilliant. Why? Because she speaks a lot like him. She is very much on his 
level of intellect. And I'll let you infer if I see that as a compliment or an insult. She is the female embodiment of Donald Trump. She, too, has learned everything she knows from watching Fox News and OANN and Newsmax and talk radio, which means that, obviously, her perception is steeped on a foundation of absolute utter bullshit. But she's going to the dais, and she's going to be just as petty and just as churlish as Donald Trump, while Donald Trump doesn't have to be there. I think that is a, listen, a brilliant stroke on his part to have someone sit in for him so that, because I, I, because obviously, as Chris Christie told media over the weekend, he is a coward. He doesn't want to face the music himself. He doesn't want his facial expressions to show his disenchantment with anyone on that day is who may speak ill of him, Chris Christie among them. So he's just not going to show. He's going to send a woman to do his job for him. And not just any woman, Marjorie Taylor Greene. By the way, while Chris was in town over the weekend, he took a dig at Jimmy Carter. Come on, man. What's that all about? My first vote, I turned 18 in September of 1980. And my first vote in my dorm room at the University of Delaware was for Ronald Reagan. When we had problems like this in the late 70s, and a president who seemed completely lost, does it sound familiar? And never forget Joe Biden said his favorite president is Jimmy Carter. <laughs> we should have known. <laughs> no offense to Georgians, but thank you. Um... No, 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 bro. I'm sorry. You can't be amongst the clique that wanted to drain the swamp in 2016. And Chris Christie was right there, ham-handed, ham-sandwich-handed, with Donald Trump wanting to drain the swamp and then take swipes at Jimmy Carter, who was, by all accounts, the least swampy of presidents in the last six decades, you'd say? Five decades? Going back to Kennedy, maybe? The least swampy of presidents in my lifetime, while the drain the swamp crowd likes to hoo-hoo-hoo about Carter's, quote, ineffectiveness while in office. Wholly lacking in self-awareness. Here's what I am going to say, however. There appears to be some movement, not enough, obviously, but there appears to be some movement in polling. Chris Christie is not liked at all <laughs> in Iowa. His unfavorability is at 60%. To give you an idea how unfavorable Chris Christie is in Iowa, he's at 60%. Donald Trump is at 33% unfavorable. Chris Christie's unfavorability at 60%, while Mike Pence, who Trumpers don't like, and, well, a lot of Republicans in general don't like. In fact, the majority, 53%. Mike Pence is at 53%. Chris Christie is at 60% unfavorable. Ain't no way he's going to rate in Iowa. Not like that. It, it's so befuddling, too, though, right? Because... Chris Christie talks a lot like Donald Trump, but he's actually smarter and has governed. I mean, you know, Chris Christie, again, he's a U.S. attorney, former U.S. attorney. He served in government. But he kind of has that plain-spokenness, that, that brash New York, New Jersey-ness of him that you thought would have rated with the MAGA movement. No, I guess he's just not xenophobic. I don't know what it is, but they just don't like him. However... 
there is a glimmer of hope for anyone who wants to see Chris Christie rest a GOP nomination. He is currently second in New Hampshire. And whereas Donald Trump has grown his lead in New Hampshire, in Iowa, by the way, by seven percentage point, he's now he now has a 25% lead in Iowa, which just goes to show you the Magistane ain't just a southern thing. Chris Christie is in second in Iowa. He trails Donald Trump by 20 percentage points, and that's still a big gap. But Donald Trump's number there, whereas in New Hampshire it's flirting with 50% or better, in New Hampshire, a notoriously independent state. Donald Trump has 34% of likely voters in a recent poll. Chris Christie at 14%. Vivek Ramaswamy at 11%. Ron DeSantis is in fourth place in New Hampshire with just 9%. Just thought I'd point that out. But Fonny drops those indictments and Trump picks up seven percentage points in the clear in Iowa. Go figure. Back after this, The Ron Show on America One Radio. Take The Ron Show wherever you go. Download the America One radio app to your smartphone and listen on the go. Or in traffic wishing you were on the go. The Ron Show on America One radio. All right, welcome back. Let's start with this. It was the worst pandemic in a hundred years. The worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. But America fought back. Today, unemployment is at record lows. Our economy leading the world. Joe Biden passed historic laws to rebuild the country, but he knows it's the American people who are the heroes of this story. America is back. We've shown each other in the world that there's no quit in America. There's simply no quit in America. In small towns and big cities, we're coming back stronger than ever. Manufacturing jobs are coming home. High-speed computer chips are getting made right here. America is leading the world in clean energy. There are some who say America is failing, not Joe Biden. He believes our best days are ahead because he believes in the American people. Those who bet against America are learning how wrong they are. It's never, ever been a good bet to bet against America. Never. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. That's part of a $25 million ad blitz that uh, will be rolling through Georgia and other battleground states. And, and according to the jolt in the AJC.com, the TV and digital media spots tie the nation's cooling inflation and job growth to Biden-backed climate change, health care, green energy, and infrastructure laws, according to the AJC's Greg Bluestein's. Uh, the ads are uh, going to run for 16 weeks and be featured during NFL games and Major League Baseball's World Series. Instagram disciples will see the promotions also, as will YouTube users. So I don't like to talk too much about my personal life, but I did have a lunch date Saturday with a cute fella who works in like finance and banking, really smart guy, great smile, nice legs. Uh, anyway... <laughs> I guess the point of this is we were having a pretty in-depth conversation there at uh, Henry's in Midtown Saturday afternoon under the shade and um, on the deck. Just just a perfect, I mean, the weather was kind of perfect, honestly. I mean, it was hot, don't get me wrong, but when you're under the shade, it's not unbearable. And I've just, I, I get a little air conditioned out. I don't know about you, but I just like, sometimes it can just be too much air conditioning. And a lot of restaurants, they set the thermostat so that their employees are cool and comfortable while they're rushing around working and working up a sweat. Well, when you're sitting on your butt, just waiting on those folks who are working up a sweat to bring you the food, you are freezing your ass off. So I prefer to sit outside if I can do it. Uh, anyway, the point is not about the air conditioning. 
the point is, we were having this in-depth conversation uh, about the Biden presidency and the prospects for 2024, you know, as a couple of handsome single gay men will do. <laughs> and uh, we got to talking about just the disconnect between the American voter, I guess when you look at polling anyway, when when you hear stories about uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden running neck and neck nationally at 43%, it's just absolutely insane. Uh, he sort of concurred with me. And by the way, this guy is way smarter than I am. Uh, especially when it comes to global finance and the economy. Uh, we both tend to agree that that 43% is probably Trump's ceiling. Like, you won't see his numbers improve head-to-head in any dramatic way. If anything, there will be a gulf that will come with the inevitability of uh, Biden the nominee, if Trump is the nominee, then Trump the nominee. I still have some sleepless, restless nights thinking, somehow the GOP may figure this out and, you know get on the right path behind somebody else. And, and again, we saw Chris Christie's numbers in New Jersey, uh, uh, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. I, I, I tend to think he's the, he's the one that makes the most sense. If I'm an outsider, if I'm picking amongst them all, I'm like, all right, you want somebody with uh, some executive leadership uh, experience who, uh, you know, kind of has that tough, tell it like it is mentality, a lot like Trump, but isn't Trump without the baggage, et cetera. And so I'm looking at him and, and he comes from a blue state, maybe a blue state that he can pull into. I'm just looking. Pennsylvania could definitely be a swing state. He could. I'm looking. I'm looking at Chris Christie. Chris Christie makes a lot of sense, but I digress. Um, so anyway, we're sitting there talking about the prospects of Biden in 2024 and uh, what if he, what if he's, you know, not able to go or, you know, because of, because of his age Anyway, we got to talking about China. And you know, Republicans are so focused on China. China this, China that, China's nuclear capability. Chris Christie was hand-wringing over the weekend at the gathering about China and their their naval capability. And I mean, it's still dwarfed by the United States. But if, if, if we're not 50 to 1, if we're not 50 to 1 for what the rest of the world spends militarily, if we were to take on the entire rest of the globe... We match up like on equal footing. We spend as much as the rest of the world does essentially combined on military. Uh-oh. But but it's, it's only four times as much as China. Uh-oh. It, it's only five times as much as Russia. Uh-oh. My God. The excess, right? We just came out of two decades-long wars, and we didn't see a blip in spending. What... It, it, Make it make sense. It'd be like if um, I am a family of four, you got, you know, mom, dad, the two kids, and mom decides she's going to be a stay-at-home mom. She doesn't need a car anymore. So dad turns around and says, okay, cool. So we're going to get rid of both of our cars, and I'm going to go buy a more expensive car and spend a little bit more on monthly car payment insurance than we were spending when we had two vehicles. Well, tell me how that makes sense. If you're trying to keep your household and you know dad wants to cut costs at the home well you know that means that you know no, no more tutoring for the kids wait but you're you're going to go drive a nicer vehicle and we're not going to say yeah to me that's kind of silly in, in any event i was going back to the lunch with the handsome guy uh he basically said what a lot of economists aren't saying as loud publicly and i feel like I, i'm not going to get in any trouble for saying this right um China is at the doorstep of a, not recession, a depression. Uh, 
And the reason I bring that up is because it sort of correlates a little bit with some of the hand-wringing that the GOP has about China from a militaristic standpoint. What drives major economies out of depressions? Usually, war. And so, I think a lot of economists do see China's issues economically as the U.S., and you heard the, 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 the Bidenomics pitch, as the U.S., managed to avoid the post-pandemic recession and hyperinflate. I mean, we had hyperinflation, don't get me wrong, but we've 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 come we've come over that. We are in much better shape than the rest of the global economy is when it comes to jobs, when it comes to the overall economic health, GDP growth, and cooling inflation. China has stopped reporting their youth unemployment data, their young adult unemployment data. They don't want to, they don't want to show, the, show the world anymore that data because it's embarrassing to them. So there is this theory that President Xi in China, not being a very smart man, but reelected here recently, obviously, I mean, under gunpoint, is going to feel like he is pressured. His back's against the wall and he's going to have to do something. And that something is something militaristic and there's all this tension with Taiwan and we saw that uh, Biden and and Japan and South Korea got together over the weekend and decided well we need to form a stronger pact and that's a little saber rattling in and of itself but mark my words this is the sort of thing that I think keeps smart people up at night And I think these are the sort of things that we have to start talking about from the left with a sense of rationality. Did I just get into a Panic at the Disco song? Uh, Anyway, yeah, a a sense of rationality. We have to talk about this. And and again, this is the sort of stuff that just makes people's eyes glaze over, right? This is so boring. Talk more about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Some more Trump insults. Uh, you know, this is this is important stuff. This is heady stuff. And we have to make the argument from the left that who do you want in charge of the country? Who do you want to be commander-in-chief of the military? Who do you want to be handling the economy? Who do you want to be in charge of the CDC and uh, FEMA? Disaster relief, you know, right? Um, pandemic response units. Do we want those again or do we want to shelve them? Do you see what I'm saying? These are the sorts of heady arguments that we have to start making to the voter. To the voter that some who aren't, shall we say, very bright, think they know better. They think Donald Trump, who could do no wrong, ignoring all the wrong he did, they're just going to stick with him. This is how you went over the independent voter, the 14% who aren't weighing in one way or the other on Trump v. Biden, this is how you win the majority of that 14% by a 10 to 4, I would say, margin, maybe more. You point out that, yeah, you know what? America's doing great, comparably speaking. When you look at the rest of the world, America's doing great. And we could sit here and we could talk about the... Uh, well, you see, the right's not talking about the economy anymore. They've they've totally given up on that. 
They like to make little swipes every once in a while. Oh, what a disaster to come inflation. It is. And and make no mistake, we talked about this last week with the whole Oliver Anthony thing. You got to talk, uh, talk about uh, kitchen table topics when it comes to budget and the cost of goods and this, that, and the other. And no doubt about it, we got to talk about that. But we also have to talk about some heady stuff that makes eyes glaze over for the not cerebral voter. If Trump were to get reelected and with apparently Marjorie Taylor Greene as vice president, holy crap. Oh my God. Could you imagine? I mean, my God, for, for all the things we could say about Mike Pence, at least the man was a touch refined for God's sakes. Holy crap. The Beverly Hillbillies like <laughs> executive branch we'd have. Good grief. My point is, you reelect Donald Trump, America, and we're suddenly withdrawing funds and support for Ukraine. We're telling Ukraine, listen, give up Crimea. It's over. Give it back to them. Here, Give them a little more territory. Putin can tell his people he won, save face, and it's all over with. Well, it, it sucks that we're going through this right now, but... It, by all intents and purposes, Ukraine is something of a proxy war that China gets to meddle in. And again, Russia's not doing well. Man, the Ukrainians are some badass people, man. I love I love that. They've just there, there's a there's a there's a fight within them that is admirable. And I want I want that war to end as well. But the way we're doing it, it ain't fast enough, it ain't swift enough, it's not it's not lacking in bloodshed. It sucks. And really, there's only one person who could end it right now, and that's Vladimir Putin, as long as he's on the face of the earth. And, you know, his health is a little wobbly, we hear, and there has been signs of friction within Russia. I'm just saying, like, the way we're doing this is working. It, it, it's not enough for us. It's not happening fast enough, and oh, it's just awful, the bloodshed. It really is. But again, we didn't call for this war. We didn't ask for this war. We just decided to stand in and defend a country against a hostile aggressor. And right now, it's the one thing the Chinese can kind of channel a little bit of their militaristic instincts. But they're teetering, man. They're teetering on the brink of depression. And we have to decide, do we want cerebral people, people who know how government functions, who know how diplomacy works? Or do we want throws ketchup on the wall when he's mad? This reminds me of the Hillary Clinton, was it the 2 a.m. phone call or 3 a.m. phone call? It, it should have been more effective than it was, obviously. But it, it should be a new campaign ad as well. Who do you want taking the 3 a.m. call? And listen, <laughs> I know we can sit here and talk about like just how with it Joe Biden is at his age, but it's not like he doesn't have a track record. As vice president and now as president, it's not like he doesn't have a track record. A measured response to just about everything that's come his way. And we can quibble about the way Afghanistan withdrawal worked or didn't. And, and there's plenty to say about that. But a lot of that comes from what was inherited. I, I know a lot of Republicans, oh, you're going to blame us. Yes, yes, you're going to. 
we didn't we didn't let the five thousand Talibani prisoners go so that they could rejoin, uh, you know, anti Afghanistan government forces. That's that's not on us. We didn't do that. We didn't set uh, an arbitrary deadline that was way too early. That's not us. We didn't we didn't do that. We didn't make Afghanistan as poisonous an environment as it wound up being as fast as it became one. But you could make some points that, okay, so maybe we didn't do that exactly the way we should have, and maybe we should have acted faster, and blah, blah, blah. We should have been more, star- blah, blah, blah. Could have, absolutely, no doubt about it. But I'm not going to let my guy or my team take the full blame for that. No, I, th- I think the 2 a.m. phone call commercial needs to be revived. And yes, it may take Sleepy Joe oh, a few minutes to not be sleepy, but my God, nobody's going to be wiping ketchup off the walls after a fit of rage. It would be a great TV campaign. Who do you want answering that 2 a.m. phone call? This guy or clink ketchup smearing down the wall. I mean, it even works if we go to the VPs. Kamala versus Marjorie Taylor Greene. What a great campaign slogan. Say what you will about Kamala. She's no MTG. Welcome back to The Ron Show. Final segment for Monday. Marketing back a little bit to the whole Katie Rinderly story in Cobb County. She, of course, lost her job as a fifth grade honor teacher at Dewes Elementary School because she read a book that was written for uh, kindergartners to uh, third graders, I believe, was the uh, the uh, the labeling in the, uh, the, the, the book. By the way, book sold at the school's book fair, and yet she lost her job because she read the book to her kids because her kids asked her to, and it spoke about just inclusivity and accepting that everyone's got a little bit of an individuality and their own uniqueness and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we can't have that. So I shared this article, I want to say it was a few weeks ago, that talked about the movie Elysium that Matt Damon did. And man, if that movie doesn't resonate now with the, the, the climate situation being what it is, have you not seen Elysium? Elysium is one of those dystopian movies, but not all that off the path, really, where the well-heeled were able to live on this glorious space station with its controlled uh, climate above the planet Earth, which was just ravaged by climate change, a dust bowl and hot, and the folks that couldn't afford to live on that space station had to exist with poor breathing quality air and heat and lack of water and sustenance and toil away to make things for those that lived in the glorious space station named Elysium. Jodie Foster played the governor. She was fantastically wickedly evil in it. Matt Damon was just an everyman who worked in a factory and uh, wound up being exposed to toxic radiation and needed treatment or he was going to die. And so he sneaks his way onto the space station that has the treatment. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gotten it. So back while he was filming this dystopian, not so fantasy, fantasy, he stopped to go to back to DC. He was filming in Vancouver. He went back to DC to the Save Our Schools March, where thousands of folks were protesting the then Obama administration's education policies that focused on standardized tests. So he delivers this impassioned speech, by the way, his mom used to be a a teacher, uh, to the crowd saying, I honestly don't know where I'd be today if that was the type of education I had. I sure as hell wouldn't be here. I do know that. I had incredible teachers. As I look at my life today, the things I value most about myself, my imagination, my love of acting, my passion for writing, my love of learning, my curiosity, all comes from how I was parented and taught. And none of these qualities that I've just mentioned, none of these qualities that I prize so deeply, that have brought me so much joy, 
that have brought me so much professional success. None of these qualities that make me who I am can be tested. And then a reporter from Reason Television comes up to him, and here goes this exchange. In acting, you, there, is, there isn't job security, right? There's an incentive to work hard and be a better actor because you want to have a job. So why isn't it like that for teachers? You, so think, you think job insecurity is what makes me work hard? Well, you have an incentive to work harder, but if there's I, job I security... I want to be an actor. It's not an incentive. That's the thing. So you take this MBA-style thinking, right? It's the problem with ed policy right now. There's this intrinsically paternalistic view of problems that are much more complex than that. It's like saying a teacher is going to get lazy when they have tenure. A teacher wants to teach. I mean, why else would you take a shitty salary and really long hours and, and, and do that job unless you really love to do it. Then the camera guy chimed in to defend his reporter for asking a really stupid question by insinuating that aren't 10% of teachers really bad though? And Matt's response was epic. 10% that are bad though? 10% of teachers are bad. Where'd you get that number? I don't know. 10% of people in any profession maybe should think of something else. Well, okay, but I mean, maybe you're a shitty cameraman. I don't know. By the way, that's his mom asking the, well, where did you get that number from? Man, that's, you know, we don't do enough of that. We don't challenge when people just pull statistics out of their ass or wherever they pulled it from. Really, show me your citation. I do that all the time. Social media, I, do you have a source? Show me your citation. I want to see where you got that from. I challenge people all the time. Matt Damon, challenge that camera, or his, his, his mother actually, as a teacher should. Show me your sources, show me your citation. How many of us learned that in grade school? Not college, not high school grade school. Show me your work. Show me your sources. Show me your citations. That was grade school learning. And that reporter and that mouthy camera guy back in 2011 got schooled. That clip for some reason has gone viral again. I don't know why. I haven't really dug in on it. It just, it caught my attention because of a Buzzfeed article earlier on my phone. And I thought to myself, wow, man, is this not an appropriate time to replay this dialogue as we deal with teacher retention problems, as we deal with parents second-guessing professional, learned teachers and faculty and administrators who know better how to do their job than the teacher does. You, you want to dictate what your kid can and cannot read? I mean, it's one thing when you as a parent... Many parents don't read above an eighth grade reading. Many adults don't read above an eighth grade reading level. It's easy when the kid's in fifth grade, fourth grade, younger than that, to go through the smaller books with the simpler words and say, eh, okay, I'm going to read that and I'll let you know if my child can read that. But at some point in time, we all know parents tap out. They stop getting involved. They just get outraged over what they hear from somebody else who got outraged because they heard it from somebody else. I, I, listen, I'm all about parental involvement in schools, to a point. But my mother never came storming into my high school to get in my trigonometry teacher's face because she didn't like the way I was being taught trigonometry. You know why? I love my mom. I do. Miss her dearly. My mom didn't know jack squat about trigonometry. And she was smart enough to know that she didn't know jack squat about trigonometry all right 
something to leave on, right? Back tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the American One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Get more at RonShowETL.com. We will see you tomorrow.